Wait, hang on, hang on. All the way This is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. Well, we say on Easter, he is risen, and you say back, he is risen indeed. I picture us getting good news like it must have been in those days and think of the good news we get today in so many ways. In fact, right now, where you are on your chats, whether on Facebook Live or on our website, put down, just write in a time that you received great news through a text message. Just begin to respond and say what it was and how you experienced it. You know, as I was thinking about this, and even as you're writing them in the chat, I was remembering, you know, much of my greater experiences happened even before uh, we had text messaging availability. So the ones I've had that have been most significant in this era have been each of the births of my grandchildren, all five of them. I've gotten a text message to say, we had them, we had her. And every time was so excited I've had text messages from friends with great news of new jobs. I've had text messages of responses from staff who've accepted positions. I've had text messages of friends who've decided to follow Jesus that have been so incredibly exciting to hear and to respond. And today, what it is we celebrate, what it is that we engage in is this good news that Jesus is risen And what I want us to do this morning, what I want us to do this day, this afternoon, whenever you're watching, is simply to discover what that means for us and what it means that he's done this. Now, I realize I'm speaking particularly to those of us who are followers that we understand what Easter is, but I'm hoping if you're searching today, maybe along the way, God will do something in your life profoundly to impact you. What we're gonna do is look a bit at the Easter morning, but then we're going to look at the meaning behind it because I've I've come to this conclusion that while we love Easter as Christ followers, I'm not sure we fully grasp what it means. In fact, what I'm speculating today is we've attached to Jesus' risen life what we want it to be. We've centered it around us, and I want to take a look at that, but begin in the mystery of the very resurrection and what it actually means what really happened on that morning that's so beautiful and wonderful and mysterious. This comes from Matthew's account. There's an account in each of the four uh, gospels, we call them, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. These two women were coming to the tomb. They had been in the midst of some struggle. They were really just coming to embalm, to help 
kind of care for Jesus in his death. Even on the road in Mark's account, it tells us that they didn't realize. They're thinking, oh, we don't even know how the stone will get moved. How would we even deal with this? They get there and the stone is moved. They're fearful. They don't know what to think. And an angel says to them this, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. What I want to invite you to do this morning is to come and see. That maybe in our coming and seeing the mystery of that, maybe Jesus will reveal who he is to us. For those that follow in new ways, for those that are searching in ways that will cause us to respond, and those with doubts that maybe it'll get us on a journey of actually searching and pursuing just beautifully that God would do something. We say there's something mysterious about how he moves. I mean, I love, I'm so inspired by the story because the first witnesses are, are women. And you need to understand in the ancient world, women had no credibility. They weren't even considered people. They were to be owned by the men they resided under, whether father or husband. I'm not saying that that's a horrible thing, but the beauty is that Jesus chose to reveal himself to people that would have no credibility. That says something to us. There's something mysterious and beautiful about it that even in our lives, when we feel insignificant and not of value and not seen as special or worthwhile, that's where Jesus comes. And we're hoping today, we've been praying for today, that he'll come and meet you. In fact, I think it's one of the beauties of what's happening in the mess we're in right now. I mean, I know we're in this mess of being isolated and struggling. Many of us sitting, many of you sitting saying, I don't have work right now. I don't know what next week is going to bring. Others of you looking more at inconvenience. Others of you looking at lost experiences. What it's done in pulling everything else away has shown us what really matters. In that place of vulnerability, I think God is opening our hearts to really see that who he is transcends all that's going on in life. Now, what I want to do, rather than simply say Jesus rose, is look at the environment Israel was in when Jesus rose. The very perspective they had, because they had barriers to seeing it, ways that they expected the resurrection to be and what it was to mean. And even as we look at theirs, I'm not looking at it so we can say, oh, they got it wrong. But to ask, how might I be doing that even today? So with that in mind, I'm borrowing from the work of N.T. Wright, wonderful New Testament scholar, but I want to show you three simple backdrops to what was happening when Jesus walks the earth and ultimately to his death and resurrection. And they're all found in little nuances of the accounts of the gospels. So the first one we're going to take from Luke's account. And it's very interesting. This is actually at the beginning of Jesus' very life. It says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and then it goes on to speak of all these other basically all these other people in authority, Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of Judea, Herod of Galilee, his brother Philip of Ituria, and Terconius Itronitus, talks of all these different places, all these different even religious leaders. And then I love this, the word of God came to John, Zechariah in the wilderness. Now there's a beautiful juxtaposition here because all it's speaking is what's going on in the world around them. And yet God speaks through a nobody in a small place of no one. But I want you to see this as the backdrop. You see, when Jesus came to the earth, Israel was dealing with something that had happened globally. Alexander the Great 
had been the major conqueror and had won battle after battle, taken land after land, and he had a very specific strategy. What Alexander the Great did was he watered down the people he conquered and moved them to different areas and kind of washed away their unique identity. We have a term for that today. It's called syncretism. In fact, in the words of Mr. Rogers, can you say syncretism? I like the way you say that. It's good. Syncretism. Mm -hmm. Can you say syncretism again? Can you look to your neighbor? Can you look to your neighbor? Well, maybe someone in your house you probably can't be with your neighbor. Can you look in your house and say syncretism? Yeah, I like it. Mm -hmm. I can hear you laughing right now. I know it. And what I want you to understand with this is Israel's looking at the backdrop of losing everything they were to Rome. Because after Alexander, other leaders come along, but they are clearly under Roman oppression. And even given Jerusalem back, they're still living under this thumb and hierarchy of what they're dealing with. They are looking through the lens of this oppressive place. Let me take you to the second picture of this that's found, it's actually found in John's account. And it's simply a small picture, but it has deep meaning. It's speaking of a time when Jesus is moving. And it says, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was the winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews were gathered there around him. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now for them to ask this at this time has deep meaning. The Feast of Dedication, in case you don't know, we have a common name for it today. It's called Hanukkah. And here's a little bit of the story of Hanukkah because remember, this will shape how Israel is looking for Messiah and what it means under Roman rule. And the second piece very simply is about power. During one of the other rulers, one of the other governors in about 150 BC, this one had come in and been more oppressive to Israel, had taken back over not only Jerusalem, but kind of kicked them out of their very temple and began to offer sacrifices to Zeus, defiling their way of life. In the midst of that, this young Jewish leaders, the Maccabee family, were part of what was going on in the priesthood, trying to maintain some order in Israel. At this time, there was one young priest who was willing to sacrifice to Zeus to accommodate the Roman rule and defile the, the temple. One of these Maccabees came forward, would not have it, and killed this man to protect Israel and then killed those in charge and took back the temple for some time. What follows is eight days of them waiting for the actual oil that has to be made and each night lighting a candle with not enough oil, God miraculously keeps it working and that's where we have Hanukkah. But what I want to see you to see is this role of power. These were messianic figures and in the past, the way they overcame Rome was through power and demand. So we have Rome and we have power. Let me take you to the final one. In another part of John's account, it tells this, after people saw the sign Jesus had performed, the wonderful miracles he was doing, providing for everyone manna in the wilderness, if you will. Surely this prophet is the prophet who's come to the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. What Israel believed from being under Roman oppression and seeing in the past how these messianic figures had come in power and taken back was they wanted Jesus to be king, to recapture for Israel what they wanted, to reign and rule over everyone else. It was the backdrop 
with which they saw everything and how they viewed wanting Messiah to come. If I were to summarize it this way, it would be like this. If you ask the question, why was Jesus coming? And you say, Israel's view was very simply this. They looked at Rome and they believed that Messiah would come to free them from Roman rule. They would free from Rome for Israel. That's what they believed the Messiah would do. They believed the power would take over Rome. In other words, it would be done with a force and a might and a power. They looked back even to the way God moved when they were a nation. And powerfully what they saw was God advance them and advance his way in them through power. That's what they wanted Messiah to do. And then finally, they wanted Israel's to be king, that they would reign over the world. This was their picture of what should happen when Messiah would come. I want to remind you how incredibly disheartening it was to them because it wasn't the way Jesus was coming at all. It wasn't the way of God. They were looking for Messiah, but they were looking to fashion him based on how they viewed the world and how they saw around them were being oppressed. We need power. We need a king to demand our power. I love it in Philippians 2. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And this portion of it, Paul's writing a letter to the church, and it's a hymn. We don't even know its origins other than by this few decades into the life of the church, it had been established to be clear about who Jesus is and was and would be. And it said it this way. He said, you all should have the attitude of Jesus. And then it describes his very life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, who was in equality with God, did not consider that. In very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. His way to being a Messiah was to become a servant. That's what it continued to say. Being formed in humanity, being a servant, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Israel expected Messiah to come to reign over Rome, to come in power, and to sit on a throne and be king. And instead, Jesus came fully to be what we call as the second Adam, to die on behalf of our sins when he's on the cross on that Good Friday and he says, it is finished. What he's saying is, I am the substitute for you. You see, what you want is a rebellion to take over and what I bring is a surrender to take on, to take on all the mess of your lives, all the mess of humanity, all the things that have created power struggles and nations and hierarchy and demand. So when he says it is finished, he means Messiah came to die on your behalf out of deep love to cover everything you couldn't cover on your own. The transformation Messiah is to bring is in you, not externally to the world, but in you and through you and transform the world differently. And then I love how this passage in Philippians continues. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven, on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, and this is where it all completes, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, when we celebrate that he is risen, what we celebrate is that everything he claimed about his death is true. 
If you don't really understand this, this is the simple way to understand resurrection. Jesus' death is a statement that you and I can't conquer sin and can't conquer death. So if his death really does finish everything, guess what we expect? Resurrection. You want to know if resurrection matters? It matters because it makes everything else Jesus claims true. It's why when we get in discussions with people wandering far from God, even people in our faith that question, if we don't understand the resurrection, we don't understand our faith. Because at the resurrection, we understand Jesus is making everything new. And the statement at the end of that passage is what matters most. Because if he is risen, he is Lord. If he is risen, he is Lord. Let me take you back to Israel. They did not understand this. They wanted him to be the one who brought their freedom because they wanted to be in charge. He wanted to be the one that brought their power so they could take over. He wanted the one to be their king so they could be the ones that took over on everyone else. They didn't understand it. Jesus was a means to their end in the same way the world was living and they missed it. Now it's easy to point at Israel and maybe it even points to some of our religious calibration in the way we see things. We can kind of view the Jesus' resurrection through the lens of we're better than. Man, Jesus died for every single person on the planet if they'd respond. It's a globally significant event. And I think we just don't see it. We miss it. But I wanna take you to the same way that's true of us today. And I want to kind of take you for a minute to this idea of Rome. You see, I don't know if you realize this, but we are really a product of Greco-Roman culture. We're Western thinkers. We live like the Western world. Let me, let me take you back to Rome just for a minute and see if you can't find connections in this. Rome was a place of deep thinking, of all sorts of understanding, and a lot of acceptance in a pluralistic, everything goes, everything works for you and works for them. There was one overarching principle, which is that Caesar is Lord, that in a sense, the way it was ruled in their lives, Caesar reigned over all. But if you went to any city in the Greco-Roman culture, anyone that had Roman rule, you would find multiple temples in that city. You might find a very temple to the actual emperor because he was considered a son of God, but you'd find lots of others of temples. You might find one to Artemis, the one who's ruler over hunting. Maybe you'd go to that temple as you were heading out to hunting. You might find one to the God of health and you would go there in the midst of health. You might find one to the God of enjoyment and sexuality and comfort and you'd go to that one. You might find a temple to the God of war. What it was were there were these different temples people went to in the midst of all that they believed, lots of places they built their lives around and thought if I go here, maybe my life will be better. So the idea of them, the Jews having a God, of even a God that rose was okay in the context of all these other gods. Now I realize we don't have temples today. But if you take a temple as a metaphor, as a place you go to find hope and renewal, to build your life around, what do you think some of the temples we have today are? In fact, I wanna invite you, whether you're watching on our page or on our Facebook page, put in the chat some of the temples you think we build in our culture. What are some of those places that we've said, this is the world we built around? And if you're not sure even what that might be, just consider for a moment all the things that have been ripped away that you build your life on. I wonder, do we have a temple of work identity? Do we have a temple that we say, you know what? 
that's part of what really matters in my life. As long as I have this identity as a great leader, as a great successful business person, as a wonderful worker, as a wonderful fill in the blank of what teacher, educator, I think we can build temples around our work. What about for us in our area? Do you think comfort might be its own temple? That we go to the God of comfort and go, you know what? What we need is God to make us comfortable. Do we have a temple of family? You know what? Family ultimately is what makes us comfortable, makes everything work okay. Do we have a God of making sure life goes up and to the right? You can fill in the blanks, but we are much more like Rome than we think we are. In fact, one of our struggles today is the exclusivity of Jesus. What Jesus rose from the dead, don't tell that to other people. But here's the beautiful claim, that if it's true, you can't ignore. The claim of scripture that is the God who created the world and humanity that broke relationship with God, God came back and restored us through Jesus' life and death. And if that's true, and he actually rose from the dead, that's what you have to deal with, guess what, everything's different. Because if he is risen, he's Lord. You don't argue about what other things teach, you just go, this is what I know. Do you know in the early church, as it blew up through all of ancient, kind of this ancient Greco-Roman culture, all through Asia Minor, all through Italy, all through Greece, all of these strongholds, it grew up with no power. Not in the way Israel thought it would. It didn't grow by taking over It grew by loving and sacrificing and dying and living as a new people in a new way. I just wonder if there isn't a message for us in that. Do you know in Greek culture, they thought that Christians were atheists because we didn't have multiple gods? They didn't know what to do with us. We have to ask the question, if Jesus rose, what does it mean? If he's risen, he's Lord. Let me speculate it to you this way because this is the way I think we need to be challenged today in our own views as those who follow Jesus. You see, well, the way we view Rome today is we want to make Rome better for us. We're not trying to change the culture culture in the sense that we go, we're a new people. We're saying, how do we become syncretized with it? Can you say syncretized? See, it came right back. I knew you'd like it. Uh huh. The thing we don't realize is that's what we've done. Jesus rose so we could bring him into Rome and have him be part of Rome. I wonder what parts we just say, let's make what our life is better for us in the way we are. I wonder how we view power today. Could it be that we think we have the power to change Rome? I think of how much energy, we spend more energy trying to change and legislate what culture is. We somehow think if we exert power And the power of who we are will make us be who God wants us to be. It's not the way Messiah moves. He dies and he rises. He says, take up your cross and be a new people. I wonder if there's a different message for us today. And you want to talk about king? We want a king who does our bidding. What most concerns me today, and this is self-imposed too, and I believe actually our isolation has maybe it's made it clearer to me in my life, I don't think I'm alone. Is it possible? Is it possible that you and I think of God as doing our bidding? This is how we say it. Jesus loves us and he does. Jesus loves us deeply. But what we equate his love with is therefore we're the center of his universe. Jesus made us Lord in loving us. Man, do we get that wrong. 
See, Jesus rose because Jesus is Lord. Jesus loves us, but Jesus is still Lord. And I wonder in the resurrection if we haven't syncretized it. We haven't kind of made it what we want it to be. You know, sometimes I don't want to say it because I worry I offend people. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you other than if God created and God fixed what he created by dying and rising and he rose, he's Lord. I don't know what it means for everything else. I just know there's a lot of temples saying a lot of other things and I'm not here to be part of one of them. I'm here to proclaim that God actually rose from the dead. Man, there's nothing like that for us. For those who follow, I would say it this way. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord. You're not Lord. And that really smacks at our Roman way of thinking because we don't think there's a Lord. We'd like there to be constituents. We'd like to think we're all equal among everyone else, including God. He's our buddy. And you know, this is one of the ironies to me. If we don't like something that God values or says, what we say is, I don't know if I want to follow that. You certainly can do that. That does not make you Lord, and nor does it take away from him being Lord. What you have to wrestle with is, did he rise? If he rose, it's not about your opinions. It's about whether it's true. And I will say this, a God who loves us and dies for us, I, I'm going to venture with what he thinks is true, not what I think is true. I wonder if I'm more informed by Rome, by the culture, than I'm informed by who God actually is. Could it be you and I are more Roman than we are Christian? I just wonder if that isn't true. I wonder if so much of what we've been dealing in our adult lives and our lives in faith are more affected by who we are as a community, as kind of a tribe, as a nation, than we are by who Jesus is. I wonder if the reason the resurrection isn't as inspiring as we've made it less than it really is. And make no mistake, if it's about doing his bidding, if it's about him being king for us, if it's about us making Rome better, no wonder it's not inspiring. It's not attainable, it's not true. That, that's the picture we have, is that these other ways don't get us there. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, we're a new kind of people. We are his people. God, I love that. I love when Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It sounds a little bit like a smack when he first writes them because he says, listen, you guys aren't really all that impressive. Not many of you had great pedigrees. Not many of you have this great history. You're not really all that bright. You're not really all that special. Guess what though? God loves you. And no one is really that special. It's a misnomer. God loves the weak ones because the weak ones see how they actually are. God loves the ones that are proud but it's hard to break through that when they think they're more than everyone else. We're a new people. God's doing a new work. If Jesus rose and we believe he did, then Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, we're a new kind of people, his people. Paul writes it this way to the church in Rome. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I don't think we understand this word new. 
I think what we tend to believe, at least I have tended often to believe this, is it's a renewed life. It takes the life I have and it makes it better. It takes me in the midst of Rome and says, I'll be better in Rome. New here doesn't mean better. It means completely different. We are a new people. (laughs) New life is not renewed. It's a different kind of life. Jesus is Lord and we are his people. Jesus is Lord and we are his people, a new people with a new mission, a new way to act, a new way to think, a new way to live. The people of God, when the early church went crazy, blowing up in its, just its infusion into culture, it was because they were a different kind of people. They weren't a part of being Rome. They were a part of being Jesus followers. They were part of a new kingdom. They were part of a new people. Paul is a great example of this. Paul had two things going for him. In the Jewish culture, he'd attained the highest status. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrew. He'd been, had his dedication on the eighth day. He'd been born into the tribe of Benjamin. He had achieved all that he could in his religious likings. In the same way, he was actually born a Roman citizen. And you know what he said about those two identities? I consider them rubbish. I follow Jesus. I'm a new person in a new community with a new way of living and a new hope. Could it be in our time today that even what's been stripped away is a joyful, wonderful opportunity? I'm not saying God caused this pandemic, but man, does God do great things in the midst of tragedy and chaos. I think there's an invitation for God to say, guess what I rose? Stop making me into your likeness. I've risen and I'm Lord. Jesus has risen. Jesus is Lord. We're a new people in a new way to live, a new community that he's made to do new things, a new life. Paul sums it up in this way, in a very simple way. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He's describing these new believers, this new way of living. And I simply want to say to you, it's an invitation. For those of us who would say we already follow Jesus, we believe in the resurrection, maybe there's a new step in it for us. Maybe it's a renewed step for us to say, Jesus is Lord. Maybe it's saying Jesus isn't here to make Rome better. Jesus isn't here to let us have power and influence to make the culture the way we want to legislate it. Jesus isn't here to do our bidding as king. Jesus is king. And man, the way we find fulfillment in our freedom from sin is to live in a new community in a new way with a new mission. The church deployed. I think for many of us, at least for me, I've needed this new Easter to be something different. So I think God might be inviting us. I think for some of us here today that you haven't responded to what we call the saving work of Jesus. What Paul says is you can be saved. It's three words. Jesus is Lord. Man, if you're living in a place going, you know what? The rest of the things I built my life around, they're shaking. And make no mistake, there's a place where you're realizing what I've built into isn't enough. And you actually believe, I think Jesus did rise. You can respond today. You just say, Jesus is Lord. What that means, it means that you actually believe Jesus died. He died for your sins. 
He died and paid the price for you. He conquered sin and death and the resurrection is the exclamation to prove it. You're saying, Jesus is Lord, I need your forgiveness. That's what it means. And you're saying, in addition to that, I wanna be a new person, part of a new community, not just on my own, living a new way. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. That's where my life lies. And I wanna invite you to respond today. And then some of you out there, you've been lots of questions and skepticism. And I'm not sure, maybe you're not ready yet. Maybe you're searching. My invitation is, will you hang out with us in that search? Hey, we'll hang out virtually if that's what it takes right now. But we think the first thing you need to know is we're not crazy and we're not weird. And we're not asking you to do some weird cultish thing. We're responding to a truth. We just want you to hang out. See if we're for real. Let us walk with you. Wherever you are today in whatever posture you're in, I wanna say again, Jesus is risen, Jesus is Lord. And I wanna pray for you with that, that you would respond in whatever way God's leading you. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that on this day, we celebrate your resurrection. God, I thank you that you have risen, that you paid the price for our salvation, that you love us infinitely. And in the same way, you are so good and loving. You invite us to be part of your lordship, to be a new people with a new purpose and a new way of life. God, I confess on behalf of all of us that we have incorporated life in Rome, that we have become people of religiosity that say we think we're supposed to have you to be over everyone else. And we let go of that today and say, you're Lord. God, let that be true for many today watching that are followers of you. Do something wonderful in elevating what we understand in the resurrection. God, I pray for those today that want to follow you. And I want you, if you're wanting to do that today, even look at me right now. And I'm gonna say it again. You just say in the prayer, Jesus is Lord. God, help me believe that in my soul. I receive your forgiveness and I wanna be part of your kingdom and part of a new way of living. And Lord, I pray your blessing over anyone who has said that today. And finally, I pray for those searching that they would not settle for just being on their own, for complacency and wonderment. If they have questions about the resurrection, God, put them into a relationship with one of us. Let us walk together. Let us build trusting friendships that we discover together the reality of your rising. I pray for each one, God, that we would be touched by your spirit now in your name. Amen.